Welcome to the Precision Health Pod, where we talk to people building and experiencing the future of health. We want to welcome Justin Mares. Justin epitomizes serial entrepreneur, having founded or co-founded Eight Plus Ventures, and most recently he founded TrueMed, enabling people to use HSA and FSA funds to buy healthy food, exercise, and supplements. Justin's also an angel investor and a venture partner. Justin, welcome to the Precision Health Pod. We're so excited to have you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'd love to get started with just hearing a little bit more about you and, and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, so my my story kind of started when I was in college. I um, I I basically like had this crazy semester where I was taking eighteen credits. I was starting my first company. I was interning at another startup in Pittsburgh where I went to school. And naturally, I, I had a girlfriend. Was you know active socially. And naturally, the what I was like feeling was oh, there's all this time pressure. Rather than get good and practice the muscle of saying no to things, why don't I just try to not sleep? And so I experimented with polyphasic sleeping, uh, where I basically was started to sleep three and a half hours a night with three or four 15 minute naps during the day. And even though that totally didn't work, I read about it on a forum. And like this forum was the first forum I'd ever read on the internet that was talking about how what you eat actually impacts how you feel. And on that forum, this is in 2010, someone was talking about the paleo diet. And so after this bio, you know, after this like polyphasic sleeping thing totally didn't work for me. I was like, well, maybe I'll get this, give this paleo thing a try. And after going paleo in college, all my friends were like, wait, you're not eating pasta. You're not drinking beer. Like you're not eating pizza late at night. What's going on. But after kind of doing that and trying it for two or three weeks, my sleep was better. My skin was better. You know, everything was better. And that kind of put me on this path of having a deep interest and sort of passion for all things, health, wellness, and food. Uh, which culminated in me in 2015 when I went out and started my own company, uh, started a company called Kettle and Fire, which is now the number one bone broth company in the country. Uh, since then, started Perfect Keto, which is a line of food and supplements for people on a ketogenic diet, as well as Shirley, which is a non-alcoholic wine brand. So after starting those three brands, now um, working on something new called TrueMed, which is effectively uh, trying to put more more you know consumer funds towards things that look like prevention, towards uh, addressing the metabolic issues, the obesity and the overweight issues that we have in this country by allowing people to use tax-free funds in HSA and FSA accounts uh, on doctors, nutritionists, uh, you know, exercise, healthier food, supplements, and things like that. Uh, so we just started and we're very, very new and working on it, which is cool. So are you working on all of the businesses at the same time? No. Are you? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. God, no. Um, no, so we we fortunately we have very very strong executive teams in place at all of the the different consumer brands. Uh, I started TrueMed with my co-founder Callie, uh, who's awesome, late last year, and so have been been kind of like grinding on that sense. I love it, and and the HSA FSA piece. So many people have unused funds, or they have these massive piles of funds, and it sounds like you guys are making it easier to use them for things that people really want, and that could help them. Yep, exactly. What is the what's average? The <laughs> what's the average amount of money people typically have in in HSA or FSA that they could then? It, it really. Use? It really depends. Yeah, it really depends on the age range, but uh, you know there are people in like the fifty plus range that have hundreds of thousands of dollars in their HSA account. FSA, on the other hand, disappears every year if you don't use it. It's kind of a use it or lose it thing, which you know, don't ask me why, but it is. Uh, and so the average person can, you know, people can put. Uh, around thirty-five to, I think it's like thirty-eight hundred dollars in their FSA account each year. 
And if they don't use it, they literally lose it, which is crazy, but that's the policy. Definitely. And in terms of all operating all these businesses or founding, founding the businesses, finding the exact teams, now building an early stage startup, uh, you have to be super productive. You have to be really focused. How do you think about mm-hmm. your own health so that you can get everything done? It's a good question. I So I have for many years been uh, what I would call uh, mostly paleo. I've experimented and done keto multiple times. I still try and do like a strict ketogenic diet uh, a couple of times a year for you know, a month or so. But the my, my overall approach is uh, I really try to automate a lot of things and just create an environment that makes sure I'm healthy. And so, you know, I have rules like I, I don't buy like snacks or other stuff uh, that are to keep unhealthy foods in the house. I like don't allow myself to go on Uber Eats and order anything outside of very, very few restaurants that are a fit for my values. We, my fiance and I live very close to a, a paleo friendly restaurant here in Austin where I live uh, called Picnic. And so I've sort of set up a lot of my life so that the most convenient thing for me at any given time is to eat something healthy as opposed to eating something, you know, like when I go home to my parents' house, it's really hard to, to you know, kind of stick to the, the diet and food quality levels that, that I like to stick to in my own life. Um, so yeah, I, I basically do that from a food standpoint. I do a sauna cold plunge at my house a couple times a week, like four to five times a week, often with friends um, and try to get eight hours of sleep. And I think that uh, move intentionally and go on walk a couple of times a day. And I think that those those practices are sort of like the cornerstone of cornerstone habits that allow me to spend a lot of time working on stuff that, you know, that I'm I'm really excited about and really trying to over optimize in my uh, professional and career life. And do you have any specific morning or evening routines that you follow? Um, I have some routines. Like I will say one of my favorite things is uh, I've been re- recently getting into breath work. Uh, so there's this company called Othership that has an app, um, a breathwork app that's really, really fantastic. So I've been trying to do a breathwork in the morning. And then oftentimes I will have friends over um, for sonical plunge in the morning. So, which is my favorite thing in the world, like have friends over, you know, we'll sit in the sauna and be outside kind of chatting, uh, doing two rounds of sonical plunge, uh, chatting, looking at, you know, getting some sun, getting some cold exposure, getting some heat exposure uh, and wrap it up all inside of an hour. It's like my favorite way to start the day on other days where I'm not starting the day that way. I'll often try and go for like a, a 10 to 20 minute walk outside just to start every single day, uh, just so I get some light exposure and um, I'm starting to move around. <laughs> so that, that's about it. And then I have a cup of coffee after 30 to 60 minutes of, of being awake. And uh, that's kind of it. Like there's some people that are very, very dialed in from a morning routine health perspective. And I've always found that just doing things that feel simple and fun for me, like hanging out with friends, going on a walk, um, you know, things like that are, are habits and activities that I can stick to over a long period of time. And so I've tried to really not overcomplicate things, shall we say, and just wake up, do a short morning routine and then start working. Is there anything that you've tried that hasn't worked for you? Oh, yeah. I still can't seem to nail like a really strong meditation practice. I've, I've tried a lot of different meditation practices. I've tried a lot of different things in the meditation realm. And I, I don't know why I just, I like, I really, I find that I can do things well when they feel like play. And I still just have not gotten to the, the point in my meditation practice where, where I feel like, oh, meditation is playful. And it's like a thing that I'm looking forward to. And it's a thing I'm excited about. 
um, it's all, it's still, it just feels a lot like work, uh, which I really struggle with to be totally honest. <laughs> I talked to a lot of founders. And I struggle to be consistent. <laughs> I talked to a lot of founders and that's a pretty consistent, um, con- consistent kind of theme. Uh, a lot of people have mm-hmm like breath work and struggle with meditation. Um, and I wonder yep. if it's that, that play aspect, it just feels a little bit, takes a little bit longer. Your, your mind can't settle quite as, as easily as other people who, who can meditate, uh, in terms yeah, of totally, in terms of thinking about your, um, mental health, which is obviously really important as you think about building companies and, and staying on top of everything that you're doing, are there any practices or is there anything that you do to really stay on top of, on, on top of what's going on in mental health? Yeah, I have a journaling practice um, that I've I've found very useful. Uh, I also like have a fair amount, I'd say a good amount of social time with friends, you know, call my family to catch up. I make sure that I'm outside for a couple hours every day at least. Uh, my fiance and I do a quarterly kind of psychedelic therapy together, which is really useful. Uh, and then, you know, we we try and do like dates once a week, like all of that is really helpful. I also think that this is not, I, I also just, I tend to think that if you are spending time outside exercising to the point of sweating almost every day uh, and you have like a couple close relationships, like I, for me at least, that seems to be the recipe for generally not getting overly stressed out or not having a lot of like mental health issues. Um, and so maybe, maybe it's genetic, but um you know, I, I certainly have like family members that struggle with depression and stuff. And I know that I can get a little depressed when I'm like inside tied to a phone or a computer all day and not seeing people. Uh, and so making sure that I'm, I'm getting enough of those things is really helpful for me. Tell me more about the psychedelic therapy that you do on quarterly. Yeah. So, so a couple of years ago, my fiance and I, my now fiance and I, then girlfriend, uh, we basically started doing ketamine therapy which is totally legal uh together once a quarter like i we we use a company called mind bloom um to do to do ketamine therapy that and and basically like we'll we'll sit down we'll write a list of things that are challenging or not going well in our relationship or things that we want to address or talk about or whatever and talk about them like under the you know in this container under the influence of psychedelics and like what I have found is my my sort of failure mode as a partner, as a human, can often be I can get defensive. And so for me, being in this container where we're both sort of like our minds are a little expanded, there's a lot more love and sort of uh, not normal like states of consciousness going on. Uh, it makes just, the, it creates just this like beautiful environment and beautiful container where the two of us can bring up and talk through really, really challenging issues in a way that doesn't trigger me feeling defensive or doesn't trigger her uh, feeling anxious or upset or things like that. And so we have found it one of the most powerful tools that, uh, that I've come across to really help with talking through some of the thorniest issues that you, that we have as a couple. And like, I pretty strongly believe that if you, if you talk to anyone who has a successful marriage, almost everyone that has ever told me is like, oh yeah, it's all about communication. It's all about communication. And I think that at some point in a company, in a marriage, in a friendship, in a relationship, there there sort of grows this long list of like things you can't say, like things that if you bring up are guaranteed to lead to a fight or guaranteed to lead to someone feeling upset, someone feeling not enough, someone feeling whatever it is. And 
I think that using psychedelic therapy has allowed us to sort of talk through and address a bunch of those things in a, in a way that has just been tremendously powerful and impactful for us, I would say. It's so fascinating to think about it from a kind of relationship, uh, mental health perspective, because you hear so much of the psychedelics used in mental health, whether it's yep. PTSD recovery or anxiety or depression. Um, but it's really the first time I've heard it from a kind of how do you relate to other people perspective. Uh, and it's yep. interesting that it's working so well, but it makes sense given all the advancements that's been happening just for individual mental health, how it would work in, in a group setting. Uh, so I love that you've tried that and, and that you shared that. Thank you uh, for going into that. So, totally. Yeah, I mean, I, I truly think that these this class of substances is going to be completely transformative for uh, relationships and couples. Like if you think about what couples therapy is, it's just like, how do you help people break through their ego, have hard conversations, understand their partner better. And I think that psychedelics as a class of, of, um, you know, medicines really help people get through that, like move through their ego, have this like outside perspective, uh, all of which I think is just tremendously useful when it comes to building a really strong partnership and relationship. Definitely. And it sounds like you use mind bloom. A lot of the the kind of daily health habits are um, free or stuff that you can just get outside, make sure you're being around friends yeah. and finding the, the, this play. But is there any kind of other tools or data that you look at on a day to day or kind of month to month basis as you think about tracking or improving your health? Yeah, I use an aura ring. Um, I have a functional medicine doctor that I so I get labs done every quarter ish three to six months, call it, depending on my travel. Um, and, but that, that's honestly pretty much it. Like, I would say that there are people that are like Brian Johnson, who has this whole blueprint thing is like measuring a hundred, whatever biomarkers, like has that incredibly dialed in life, incredibly like, uh, you know, it, it just measures tests, everything. I'm very much on the other end of the spectrum. I don't enjoy doing a lot of that stuff. And it feels like constraining to me. And so there's there's like very few things that I can actually take on and stick to uh, and make changes on. And so Aura Ring is pretty much one of them. And then I will look at my labs on a quarterly basis just to understand um, if, you know, what what's going on and what interventions do I maybe need to, to need to run. And it makes sense in terms of how you integrate it into your busy life. You're, you're still looking, you're still making informed decisions, uh, but it's in a way that actually works within what makes you feel good. Yep, completely. And turning gears a little bit. So with TrueMed, you're really building this future where people can make more informed decisions about their health. They can make more decisions that they want to be making. They have control of, mm -hmm. of kind of how they're spending their money, how they're handling their healthcare dollars. Um, what could that look like for, for the future? Like what impact Great would that question. have? Yeah. So I, a big one. I mean, the, what I think is like, if you look at the healthcare system and you look at healthcare spend in general, uh, less than one and a half percent of all healthcare dollars go towards anything that even resembles prevention. And I think that if you look, you, you take that as one data point, you then walk down the aisles of any grocery store and you see that every, on, in, on average, the stuff that is horrible for you, that is highly processed, that has a bunch of seed oils, uh, sugars, like processed BS additives, things like this is almost always cheaper, more like hyper palatable, built almost an engineer to be like addictive to the average person that eats it. And then you have that stuff versus like an organic raspberry or cucumber or something like that. Uh, and, and you just see like this 
all of the high quality stuff, uh, all of the high quality foods that like bone broth, you know, fruits, vegetables, meats, things like this are commodity things where, you know, equality like costs money. Uh, and then all of the, the BS on shelves, all the stuff that is driving our obesity, overweight, and chronic disease crisis in the US is all extraordinarily cheap. And so what we're trying to do as TrueMed is there's $140 billion in HSA and FSA accounts in, in the US right now. Like if we can allocate some of those funds uh, that are tax-free, so the consumer has 30 to 45% you know, higher purchasing power, depending where they live. Um, if we can allocate some of those funds away from highly processed or like towards basically things that will improve someone's life, improve the way they feel, uh, improve their food quality, their supplementation, their sleep, their exercise, their lifestyle. Uh, we think that we can actually use HSA and FSA accounts to nudge consumers towards making healthier choices for them by making these things that are better for their health, more affordable uh, and, and, more, and thus more accessible as opposed to today's standard, which is like you walk down a grocery store or whatever, and almost everything that's good for you is also more expensive. It's also like, you know, doesn't, doesn't come with any tax benefits. It doesn't come with any benefits, frankly, at all. Uh, so that's kind of what we're working on. And that's really true regardless of what grocery store you're shopping at um, or if you're shopping online and kind of where you're shopping, uh, the more processed, whether it's organically processed, is often cheaper than the, the organic um, fruit vegetable equivalent. Outside totally. of I, I think you could I, I think you could make just really quick, uh, I think you could make a pretty compelling argument that the most insane policy in the US is that as a country, we subsidize via SNAP, EBT, WIC, all these sorts of things. Uh, we, we subsidize a, a ton of stuff on the food security side for people that are low income. And a lot of what we're subsidizing is processed foods and soda, things that are driving chronic disease and obesity. Then on the other side, after basically saying, hey, you can't buy a hot rotisserie chicken at the grocery store because it's hot, but you can buy as much soda as you want. Uh, after subsidizing these food groups, then you see elevated levels of chronic disease, obesity, and overweight in these lower income groups as well. And then we also pay crazy amounts for their healthcare. And yet there's no possible way, there's no mechanism right now in the system for the government to cover uh, like a food prescription or buy organic food for low-income kids or any number of these things that like clearly would have high ROI yet are just not happening in our food system today. And I think it's totally insane. <laughs> the incentives in this space are just bonkers to me. Why do you think the incentives the way they are the way they are? Uh, I think that they're the way that they are because like rewinding a little bit, I mentioned earlier how uh, food companies, you know, if you're selling like a high quality product like meat, produce, vegetables, whatever. Um, yeah, meat, meat, produce, nuts, anything like that. A lot of these are commodity products uh, or you know, with some premiumization, uh, but they're commodity products that tend to be a little bit lower margin. It turns out that if you're making Oreos as opposed to selling a pound of ground beef, consumer, there's a lot of competition for selling a pound of ground beef. Like you can buy it from your local farmer. There's like a bunch of different meat processors all over. And so the band of price for a pound of ground beef stays roughly within the same range. When you're making Oreos, you're often like, at least for a while, like you're kind of the only game in town. And so you see structurally companies that are making produce, meats, things like this have much lower margins than companies that are making hyper-processed, high margin foods. And one of the reasons, and like the cycle I think that exists in the food space right now is a big food company uh, starts to make something that's hyper-processed. 
they then use a bunch of the billions of dollars that they're generating in free cash flow to lobby for increased food subsidies, uh, like corn, soy, wheat generally, which lowers their input costs on some of the things that they're buying to make their hyper-processed, you know, food that's making people sick. Uh, as their input costs go down, they have more free cash flow, which they also use to invest in um, fake nutrition studies. Uh, like one one study came out that said that in, in in a review of a bunch of different papers around is soda bad for you and does it drive chronic disease, obesity, or or, or overweight? Uh, they found that eighty two percent of studies that were that big food was related to found that it soda had no impact on weight at all, you know, whatsoever. And then in 93% of studies that had no big food influence from a funding standpoint or otherwise, they found that soda definitively had a bad impact on when it came to like obesity or overweight. And so I think you just have these super profitable companies that go, how do we make more money? How do we become more profitable? Well, we are going to lobby for increased subsidy dollars. We're going to sort of like make it more confusing to suss out and understand, does soda actually drive obesity and overweight? We're going to lobby to get uh, soda contracts or like big food contracts with all the schools, hospitals, military, and the like, which is why you see soda in uh, soda contracts exist with almost 80% of schools all over the country. Uh, it's why you see uh, childhood lunches, like having to eat lunch at your school is now a risk factor for childhood diabetes. Like you are far more at risk to get diabetes as a child if you rely on a school lunch as your main, as like your main source of calories for lunches. All these things are insane. And I think it is like fundamentally happening because these big food companies are just throwing money around and basically running a what's called like a regulatory capture playbook to make sure that they make more money at the expense of the average American's health. Yeah, and it's really impacting the lower income populations, those people that are relying on the school lunches. Yeah. Um, and it's really difficult for the average person to understand that nutrition research isn't necessarily real. Um, I mean, it's real, yeah. but it's it's funded by different people. Um, and even in the in in the nutrition space, one study I like to to talk about is uh, one of the largest nutrition studies related to um, kind of vitamins and minerals. It's twenty two thousand plus people, um, all middle aged white male doctors between the ages of forties and sixties. Uh, and we, as a society, rely on that information for everyone. Um, and so it's just this concept. You actually have to really look at, at what's going on in the study, uh, who's funding it and, and how it's being approached uh, to get to the bottom of totally. it. But it's a huge education play. Totally. I mean, and I, I recently wrote about this, but there was something called the Tufts Food Compass that came out a couple months ago, which was basically Tufts, uh, Tufts School of Nutrition spent three years, multiple millions of NIH funding to come out with a nutrition nutrient profiling uh, system. Uh, that basically said that Lucky Charms were healthier than beef and that like an egg cooked in vegetable oil was much healthier than a whole egg cooked in butter. Like just this insane, they basically had, it was something like 60 brand name cereals that were ranked more healthy than beef, including frosted mini wheats, like uh, cornflakes, cherries, all these things. And it's only, in my opinion, only in the name of of science and like a very science, you know, a very big food money influenced science can you even possibly try and convince people to deny what they know deep at a common sense level which is that lucky charms are not good for people and they should not be eating them uh, in massive quantities so this is just like insane this insane thing that came out just a couple months ago 
I can't believe that beef is less healthy than Lucky Charms. Um, yeah, but also goes in, goes into <laughs> goes into talking about. I mean, a lot of what we're saying and we're saying, and it validates um, parents too. If if parents are saying, "Okay, yeah. my kids love Lucky Charms, I'm just going to keep buying Lucky Charms." Um, it's hard enough as a I I am a mom of two, and it's hard enough to feed your kids. So getting yep. hearing this kind of studies is is um, not helping anyone. Uh, totally. Uh, and I mean, worse than that, it's like, it, it's what informs food policy. Right. Uh, and so, you know, it basically like there's this made up study funded by big food and the NIH that is using taxpayer money to fund a study that is fundamentally untrue. And then they fund this study. Then the big food takes this and pushes it out to, uh, you know, all of the different organizations that determine what go in school lunches. They talk to school boards. They go, oh, guess what? This is actually not that bad. Oh, look, this study from Tufts Nutrition funded by the NIH, like, does X, Y, and Z. And this is how I think you have extremely misguided guidelines and you have school boards, schools all over the country, hospital systems and the like, uh, buying almost all of their food products from big food companies that are driving the underlying chronic disease and nutrition issues that we see in the US. And given where we are today, what do you think health will look like in, in three, five, 10 years with companies like TrueMed and, and other companies trying to attack uh, a lot of these a lot of these problems? Yeah, I, I think that if you look at the healthcare system, the way that it's structured today, the healthcare system basically pretends that what you put in your body doesn't drive any health outcomes. And the food system basically pretends that what you put in your body has no impact on how healthy someone is. And so I think the only way we're going to get out of this is to fix the incentives that drive people to eat crappier foods, that drive people to not exercise, that drive people to suffer from malnutrition, uh, you know, not getting enough nutrients while also overeating and eating hyper palatable, hyper processed foods. Um, and I think basically if we, if we want the U S to not crumble under the weight of our, uh, you know, our, our massive healthcare spend, I basically think that we have to fix the incentives in the system. And I think that one way to do that is through, you know, using HSA and FSA funds to allocate more dollars towards things that look like prevention or treating the 72% of Americans that are overweight or obese or the 93% that have metabolic conditions. And then beyond that, I think that our health food system or yeah, our, our healthcare system uh, just has needs to account far more for what someone's diet looks like, what their lifestyle looks like, and try and allocate more dollars and create more incentives for the average person to uh, invest in their health before they actually get sick. And where do you think providers or clinicians fall into this? Yeah, I'm hopeful that um, I'm hopeful that they have a big role to play. Clearly, if a provider got on board and said, you know, we believe in food as medicine, I think that there's a chance that one of these providers could be among the most profitable companies, in, you know, in the country. Uh, you know, if there was a company that said rather than spend, you know, thirty thousand dollars a year on diabetes care after someone has diabetes, maybe we'll give you a grocery prescription or a food prescription that helps make it easier and more affordable for you to buy healthy organic foods uh, before you actually need you know, thousands of dollars a month of diabetes uh, management care. Uh, and so I'm hopeful that there's a payer that steps up. I think that one of the challenges is that we need better studies and better, better linkages and feedback loops between this person made this lifestyle diet or other intervention, and that led to X, Y, and Z uh, health outcome. That's what I think companies like Verta Health and some of these are, are doing a, a really good job of. That I'm really excited about. Uh, and from a doctor standpoint, I'm not sure. Uh, I think that many doctors, you know, 80% of medical schools have doctors have literally zero nutrition classes. Uh, 80% of like these medical, most medical schools are funded 
by pharmaceuticals and other sort of like standard players in the medical system that are very focused on treating patients once they're sick. Uh, however, if you look at medical and healthcare spend, you know, 85% of all spend goes towards chronic illness of some sort. Uh, that is pretty unique. Like we've basically built a medical system where the average person didn't get sick and there were doctors there to treat you when sickness happened. Now we have a different world where the average person is sick in the US. Again, 72% of you know, Americans are overweight, 93% have some metabolic condition uh, or a marker for you know, dysfunction in metabolism. And so I think we need to rethink completely the idea or what does it mean to be a doctor? Or what should our healthcare system look like given that the default or the average person is actually sick and in need of care? Uh, and I don't know that the average, you know, the average doctor spends something like seven minutes a year per patient. Like, I don't know that treating doctors as a bottleneck is necessarily going to help scale the system as much as uh, things like giving people the power to put their own health in their own hands from a food supplement lifestyle and, and measurement standpoint is definitely a route that I'm much more bullish on. And it's possible if people are putting their health in their own hands, they can also act more of a partner with providers than relying on providers themselves totally. to within seven minutes, tell them exactly what they need to do. Um, and I was, I, my personal health stories is similar. I had a doctor, I had massive gut health problems when I was younger. Um, and they told me that what I ate didn't matter. Um, and that just did not make sense. Uh, thankfully my parents were, um, early adopters of the, the functional medicine approach in, in Boulder in the seventies. Uh, and my mom was like, no, that doesn't work. Like you're eat what you're eating matters. Um, yep. and so I had to take it in my own hands and, and solve it. And that's kind of where I, how I started on this, on this journey. But the fact is 20 years ago that happened, it's still happening today. You're going to the doctor, you're having, health issues yep. and they're giving you a prescription instead of figuring out what's going on with your biomarkers or what's happening with your activity. What are you eating? How are you thinking about it? Um, and yep. it's really not, not helping. And I think from a technology standpoint, that's another place where um, tech can help because humans can only do so much. So as you think about tech, as you think about measurements yep. and these, the choices that they're making on, on a platform like TrueMed, um, are they helping and getting the, that outcomes data? It will will go a long way towards a payer provider question. As totally. Well. And I also don't blame doctors. I mean, you, you look today, you have like the doctors have never had lower life status, you know, life and career satisfaction. They've never been so overworked. They've never had uh, such weird incentives in, in our healthcare system that is so fundamentally broken. And so I don't blame them. And I think most of these people want to do the right thing. They don't want to see the patient suffer. They don't want to like harm people. I just think that they're stretched for time. And if you take a extremely stretched for time, uh, you know, type of person that has huge amounts of medical debt, uh, you know, and, and, and whatnot, and frankly, very little education when it comes to nutrition and lifestyle interventions, I just don't think as someone who believes that nutrition and lifestyle interventions are the way to, or the path forward to fix health. I just don't think that this class of people uh, is going to be the ones that sort of like turn the ship around and move it into a direction that, you know, has us going back to 1970s levels of chronic disease and healthcare spend. It's a really valid point and kind of thinking about it because doctors have so much on their plate and um, it's really around patients have control of their own health. So how do we, how do we inform that and how do we make that easier? And, and yep. turning a little bit, thinking about your career to date, um, you've done a lot. If you think about where you started, is there any piece of advice that you would give to yourself or that you maybe someone's in your shoes um, and wants to follow in the path? What would you tell them? 
Um, I would say that I, I spent a lot of time stressing about is my career going the right way? Am I working on the right thing? Am I doing the right thing? Oh no, like a lot of that. And I think that a lot of that could have just been avoided and I could have just chilled out and things would have happened roughly as, as they did. Like I, I much more am a believer now in sort of letting things unfold and following your interests and following things that just seem to pull at you. For me, like health was a big thing that I just people would ask me questions about. Uh, like I, I do think that one valuable way to think about what are you passionate about is like, what do your friends consistently ask you questions about? And for me, that health was a big thing, uh, a big thing that I just always get questions from my friends about. And so, um, so I, I wish in retrospect that I had spent less time stressing about, am I doing the right thing? Am I going to make it or no? Um, and I will say that I'm very grateful for when I was 25, uh, I basically left a software tech company in Silicon Valley to go out on my own. And I didn't know what that would look like. I figured that my burn would never be lower. I'd never have more runway, uh, personal runway, you know, than I did at 25 as a single and married, you know, no kids sort of person um, with no health conditions and, and <laughs> paid off student debt. Uh, and so I was basically like, now's the time to take my shot. I took six months. I did consulting. I tested out a bunch of different ideas. And I finally landed on one that worked that I felt really strongly about, which was Kettle on Fire. And so I think that just trying to plan and figure out when is the time to take that bet on yourself, when to take that shot on yourself is really important. And I'm super grateful that for, for years leading up to that, I turned down a bunch of jobs that at the time found attract, felt, felt attractive. I turned down a bunch of opportunities. I saved a ton of money. Um, I figured out how to like build up passive income on the side, at least a little bit. And when the time came, I was like, okay, I'm going to go for it. Like, this is, this is my shot. Let's, let's make it happen. Even though it felt very unclear what I was actually going to do. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I would do the same thing over again. And I'm very glad that I did. <laughs> it sounds like you prepped a little bit for it too. Like you kind of had this inkling where you're like, at some point I want to go out on my own. So I'm going to try to set it up such that it feels a little bit easier because it's never easy to make that jump, but uh, prepping for it yes. makes it makes it a little bit more of a reality. Yes, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> well, just to wrap up, um, Last question is just where people, where can people find you um, and where can people find more about TrueMed? Yeah, so people can find us at TrueMed.com, um, sign up for our waiting list. We're gonna be launching with a bunch of merchants in the next like couple months. Uh, I also can be found on Twitter at JWMares, M-A-R-E-S, or my Substack, which I write monthly. Uh, just Google Justin Mares newsletter and you'll find it uh, if you wanna follow along. Perfect, well, thank you so much for joining. This has been a great conversation. Really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Appreciate you having me. Madden and Mitchell Media.